Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Christopher Fry. He's a tenured associate professor in the Department of Athletic Training and Clinical Nutrition at the University of Kentucky. He serves as the associate director of the Center for Muscle Biology, which of course is something we find fascinating. Chris completed a BS in biology at Baylor University, PhD in biomedical sciences at the University of Texas Medical Branch, and a postdoc in muscle physiology at the University of Kentucky. His research is funded by several grants through the NIH, and he has received several awards for his research. He has created a focused research program that bridges targeted mechanistic approaches to clinical translation. What does this mean? This means he seeks to enhance the regenerative and regrowth capacity of skeletal muscle when it is compromised following an acute musculoskeletal injury with the purpose to support patient recovery. I know that that was a mouthful. It's really important to understand that in this episode, we do something very unique. We take bench research, mechanistic and animal model research, and Dr. Chris makes the bridge to human research, and then finally to clinical application. Very unusual and very important research. In this episode, we discuss the concept of muscle plasticity and its importance in understanding muscle adaptation and recovery, particularly in the scenarios of muscle wasting or injury. We also discuss what a satellite cell is, why it is so important, and how that impacts both injury and sport performance and hypertrophy. This episode was packed with scientific information, with questions as to where we are in muscle physiology research, what we know, and what are some therapeutic applications of his personal research. This probably was one of my favorite episodes. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to share it with your friends, with your family, with your trainer, with your healthcare provider. This is how we spread the word on muscle-centric medicine. I'm so excited to announce that I am having the first ever Forever Strong Summit on January 13th and 14th for a transformative in-person experience where I will share cutting edge insights on optimizing health, performance, and longevity, empowering you to unlock your full potential. My friends, I cannot wait to meet you in person. Please don't miss this exclusive opportunity to learn from some of my best friends, renowned experts in the field. Secure your spot at drgabriellelyon.com slash forever strong summit. That's drgabriellelyon.com slash forever strong summit. See you there. Thank you to Element for sponsoring this episode of the show. 
you know, when I talk about element, I talk a lot about muscle health, hydration from a headache standpoint, energy. The other thing about element that I use it in a clutch situation, which is just about every week is when I have to go talk to people, or should I say, get to talk to people. Do not be one of those people that get up on stage and your mouth is so dry that it's almost painful to listen to. Or if you are going to a party, lots of holiday parties, and your lips are smacking together, do yourself a favor, pregame with Element. It has a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. It will help you stay hydrated, sound great, train hard, and just be overall well hydrated. I love Element. I know you will too. Head on over to drinklmnt.com slash Dr. Lion. That's drinklmnt.com slash Dr. Lion. You will love it. You'll get a eight single serving packet free with any Element order. Thank you to Paleo Valley for providing us with one of our absolute family favorites. That is their beef sticks, their turkey sticks. This product is absolutely hands down incredible. If you want protein on the go, then Paleo Valley has your array of meat sticks. Yes, you heard me right. Why do I love them? Number one, they taste phenomenal. They have this fermentation process that they do to these beef sticks. So their texture and their flavor, it's just different. These beef sticks are 100% grass-fed, grass-finished. They are beef sourced from small domestic farms. Again, they taste amazing. My listeners get 15% off. Got to be happy about that. These products have omega-3 fatty acids, vitamins and minerals, bioavailable protein, just incredible, and they are our go-to. You can get yours. Head on over to paleovalley.com slash Dr. Lion. That's paleovalley.com slash Dr. Lion, or use the code Dr. Lion for 15% off. Dr. Chris Fry, welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show. I am thrilled to have you on. Just before we started recording, we were mentioning the list of the who's who in the muscle protein synthesis world and you, and not just the muscle protein synthesis world, but the muscle world, you are certainly on that list. I am ecstatic and excited to talk to you about your research Tell us a little bit about your current lab. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for the opportunity to be on the show today, Dr. Lyon. It's a pleasure to meet you. I've been a big fan of the show for a long time. Um, so I'm currently an associate professor at the University of Kentucky. I help direct our Center for Muscle Biology. We have a very interdisciplinary group of researchers that have an interest in all things muscle, be it cardiac or skeletal. Right now, my lab employs a variety of research trainees and scientists spanning from undergraduate level to PhD seeking students, postdoctoral fellows, as well as research level faculty, those who have completed advanced training, such as a postdoc fellowship, looking to really kind of make that next step to their career. Um, and as you said, we have an interest in all things muscle. So we've got a variety of projects looking at how we can 
adapt our muscles in instances where we're challenged in terms of weakness or atrophy. That's our, our primary interest. Which is incredibly relevant to an aging population and also a population that has uh, medical issues related to skeletal muscle. So I'm sure that we will go into detail there. But before we do, I always like to understand a little bit about the researcher. Why, Dr. Fry, why skeletal muscle? I'll try and keep it relatively brief. <laughs> um, I always enjoyed exercise and athletics growing up. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, you know, I had friends in various kinesiology or exercise science graduate programs, and I really fell in love with a lot of the molecular biology courses I was taking at the time. And some of my graduate student colleagues kind of advised me to look at programs where I could, you know, bridge those two passions, where I could study on a molecular basis how muscle adapts. And that's what led me down to the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston, reaching out to some of the investigators there who study a lot of protein metabolism in response to nutrition and exercise. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever, you know, studying patients, taking muscle biopsies, understanding how we build muscle, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. And from there, my research interests, you know, continued to broaden. I really became interested in how we can leverage and harness, you know, preclinical models using rodent studies to try and understand more mechanistically how it is, you know, muscle adapts to the various stimuli with which it's exposed. And that's kind of dovetailed into our, you know, current research paradigm where we try and bridge sort of very like targeted mechanistic trials, but then not losing sight of the patient's we work with, you know, our goal is to identify therapies to enhance their physical function. And so that's the principle that kind of guides our research program. It's so fascinating. And I've reviewed a handful of your papers and it's exactly what you're saying. Some of it is incredibly mechanistic and it really points towards clinical relevance, which is very unique. Um, and we will link some of those papers and, and we will talk about some of them regards to what we believe as truth. So science, muscle physiology, muscle mechanics, et cetera, health is an ever-evolving field. And I often wonder the things that we agree upon, the working hypotheses that we agree upon when it comes to muscle plasticity mm. versus are there things that we disagree upon? It's a, it's a loaded question. You know, I feel that's part of the fun of science is as we continue to uncover new evidence, our, our, our hypotheses, our theories, what becomes known as ground truth, as you so well put it, I think adapts and changes, you know, much like muscle does. Um, I, I think, too, you know, we, we try often to challenge paradigms more so because, you know, historical studies may not have been collected or analyzed in the most rigorous light with the bevy of tools we have at our disposal today. So it's often helpful to kind of revisit some long held beliefs to see if they still hold water. I feel, you know, so much of the historical precedent and research guides our current clinical practice and making sure the veracity of those findings hold up to, you know, current studies, current designs, I think is, is critical, not just, you know, a revisit for revisit's sake, but always trying to keep in mind that these are you know, uh, guidelines we're giving, you know, patients and or, or advice to try and maintain function vitality throughout the lifespan. So I think it's incredibly important to kind of come back to some of those ideas that we have held as truth. I know that was 
a major part of, of some of the work I was involved with you know, several years ago where we were looking at how muscle stem cells themselves help kind of govern this, this intrinsic plasticity you speak about in, in muscle. I, I feel that's one of the things that keeps me coming back to the tissue. It, it adapts so robustly when you, you know, expose it to stimuli, you begin lifting weights, muscle can hypertrophy, you're faced with casting or, or bed rest, muscle atrophies. And so understanding the cues that kind of govern that adaptability are, are critical to devising more efficacious therapies. And, you know, part of what we sought to do in those prior studies was to determine the necessity of activating your, your local muscle stem cells to kind of support what we would call hypertrophic remodeling, the building of muscle, um, and how, how critical those cells are in governing those processes. Yeah, that is um, very eloquently put. And I'd love for you to explain to the listener um, the concept of muscle plasticity and the importance of understanding muscle adaptations, recovery. I understand this is a very loaded question within the scenarios of muscle wasting or injury. And I think even potentially before you do that, maybe explain to us what a satellite cell is, what a muscle stem cell is, because I have actually, frankly, questions of my own. Um, and one question is, are we born with the amount of satellite cells that we are destined to have? Is there a transcription limitation from, um, you know, you've done research on this PACS, uh, this regulation of PACS. So I, I would love to hear your perspective. Definitely. Happy to share and discuss. You know, I guess I tend to, and I believe, you know, you're the same from listening to prior podcasts. This, this concept of plasticity refers to how adaptable muscle is. It, it, it responds very well, you know, upon the initiation of physical activity or exercise However, you know, if we're faced with an illness or, or periods of disuse, we're just as likely to exhibit kind of those negative consequences within muscle whereby we're weak, we're, we're losing muscle mass. You know, these are kind of the, the hallmark uh, uh, consequences we seek to avoid and how muscle responds to those stimuli is, is of critical importance so that we can try and mitigate those, those periods of weakness or atrophy. And so... A lot of our prior work has focused on what I kind of broadly term muscle stem cells. There are probably a variety of stem cells or cell types that could fit under that umbrella. I use it most you know, commonly to refer to what is termed a satellite cell that, that you described before. Satellite cell was discovered um, some 60 odd years ago on its, based on its anatomic location. If you think of a muscle fiber as sort of a polygon shape, these cells were found to reside on the periphery in sort of a satellite position. This, you know, kind of led to its name and even, you know, six decades ago was hypothesized that those cells served as, you know, a critical source to support muscle regeneration following damage. And, you know, we've continued to, you know, support those initial observations from scientists so many years ago. But satellite cells are the intrinsic stem cell within muscle. If you sustain an acute injury, the, the recovery process, that regeneration process is entirely dependent on satellite cells. They undergo a very well-described activation. They increase in number dramatically, and they can directly fuse with damaged fibers to kind of repair that process. 
it's been most uh, satellite cell activity has been best defined in context of damage associated recovery. But I feel many of those principles can be applied to how we interpret adaptation to exercise, you know, especially in the early periods of exercise um, progression, you can sustain, you know, a little bit of micro tears, micro damage to those muscles as they're exposed to, you know, something wholly new. We often perceive that as delayed onset muscle soreness or these kinds of feelings of aches and pains after a particularly heavy or new day in the gym. And satellite cells can therefore play a very similar role to kind of facilitate the, the remodeling, the kind of recovery of those muscle fibers we damaged the day prior. The purpose being is we can build back the fibers better. The body is better able to kind of face that same challenge again. It meets it being a little bit more robust to protect against subsequent injury from that particular stimulus. Your point. Are, oh, please. I'm sorry. Please, Go no. ahead. Um, so I, I'm curious: Are we born with a, a certain amount of satellite cells that um, some individuals are born with more, some individuals are born with less, and would that make an individual born with more more capable of recovery, regeneration, perhaps sport performance, protection against illness? An excellent question. You know the the assessment of, of our satellite cell density is often based on direct tissue sampling, i.e. a muscle biopsy. So it is a fairly invasive procedure. And so, you know, for that reason, there are rather limited assessments, at least, you know, from a, a pediatric or early adulthood standpoint, just, you know, the challenges faced with working with younger adults or children it's tough to know the exact amount of heterogeneity that exists within our population as far as stem cell abundance, satellite cell abundance. But, you know, we are, you know, uh, um, born with a number of satellite cells. And again, that's, you know, one of the challenges of working with a relatively long-lived organism like, like humans that uh, we're limited at times to kind of sequential cross-sectional studies to look at how abundance shifts across the lifespan. So in rarer instances, are we able to track the same person across their lifespan, but we can glean information by studying subsets of individuals, you know, ranging in age from early 20s through their late 80s. And a number of studies have shown, you know, in these sorts of patient-derived um, outcomes that there is a loss of satellite cells as we age. And this is thought to reduce that sort of intrinsic plasticity present in our muscles, whereby we're less able to respond to an injury or reap the benefits of exercise. And so to your point, you know, it is an active area of research to try and harness that, that satellite cell or stem cell ability in an effort to bolster muscles ability to respond during, you know, periods of disuse, illness, or just during the aging process itself. Do we know if it's the aging process or is it the inactivity that is often associated with aging? Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. It is very difficult, I feel, to kind of parse those two separately given, you know, the adoption of a more sedentary lifestyle that tends to accompany aging, you know, across societies, cultures, and continents. You know, I personally would like to think that Aging per se has some effect there, but 
I likely and largely believe that, you know, it's, it's this, this loss of, you know, physical activity, this engagement and exercise that really exacerbates and accelerates the decline in satellite cell abundance. That's, you know, my opinion, but I feel it's, you know, one of those things you definitely want to move it or lose it, so to speak. And in terms of nutrition for satellite cells, do we know, we, there's a, a very clear indication of macronutrients that would feed skeletal muscle. We know that they have an amino acid trigger. We know their metabolic activity. And you do speak about the oxidative capacity of various fiber types, which we will discuss. Satellite cells seem incredibly unique to skeletal muscle. And I'm curious as if we know what helps perpetuate, aside from movement, but what helps feed these cells? Or is there anything that we could do as people to ensure the health of these satellite cells? It's an excellent question. You know, again, we're, we're somewhat limited because we are, as you, you know, very nicely point out, we're chasing a pretty limited stem cell population in our muscle. You can assume satellite cells account for maybe two to 4% of all cells within our muscle. So they're, you know, by far and away, a very limited subset of, of you know, what we're able to, to conceptualize when we think about muscle. <sighs> Utilizing what we've learned from very basic studies, whereby you take these cells, expand them in a Petri dish, there have been shown that a number of cocktails enhance their growth rates or doubling, if you will, in those Petri dishes. A number of, you know, essential amino acid derivatives, you know, leucine, HMB, these things have been shown, at least in those cell culture-based models, to be efficacious to kind of enhance the growth rates of these cells. If you think of a person at rest, satellite cells are incredibly quiescent. They're main goal at that point is to kind of just chill out and wait till a challenge comes. Now you go into the gym, have a really hard workout, your body, you know, initiates a lot of reparative processes, some of which are, you know, occurring in, in time with satellite cell activation. Maintaining, you know, just, just a, a, a diet enriched in protein, kind of the same sort of dietary guidelines one would give any individual you know, ascribing to a new physical fitness regimen would be helpful to kind of support their growth. As long as you're not in severe caloric deficits, you know, you're able to then harness their true potential. But given their relative rarity, they don't have large nutrient demands like you think of your muscle accommodating 40 to 50 percent of your body size has a much greater pull on the calories we bring in following an exercise bout. That, that certainly makes sense. What about, and I don't know if this has been studied in humans, um, but what about medications or other uh, things that we could potentially be putting in our body that would be toxic to a satellite cell and then thus not allow recovery of skeletal muscle? It's a good question. You know, I'm definitely not a medical provider, so I, you know, try and make sure I'm, I'm, not doling out advice that's uh, outside of my scope, so to speak. But, you know, especially as, as we look towards like trying to enhance adaptation with aging, as we get older, you know, there, there just tend to be more medications that we are on. And so it is difficult to parse out how individual medications might influence the activity of satellite cells. 
not, you know, I don't want to, to demonize any particular class of medications. And it's, it's hard to study them in isolation to speak to any sort of, you know, specific notion that one per se is having a more detrimental effect than another. Uh, it, it's, yeah, I, apologies it's, to be a little bit. It's challenging. No, no, no. It's challenging. We have limited insight right now. And, you know, these satellite cells, as important as I may feel they are, you know, they're not driving medical decisions. And so we're often not able to engage in the kind of controlled, randomized trials we would need to truly understand the effect of drug X or Y on how these cells function in our bodies. That's what it would take. And they're just unfortunately not driving the boat when some of those decisions are made from a medical perspective. Not yet. Anyway, not not yet. Not Not yet, yet, my friend, (laughs) but we're changing that because more and more individuals are recognizing that the survivability of an individual is largely dependent on their skeletal muscle, regardless of the insult, regardless of the disease process, having healthy skeletal muscle will put an individual uh, in a favorable position. Why would you say that satellite cells are so important from a recovery from injury and hypertrophy? Two separate, and if I were to say, uh, you know, injury, let's say a disuse or uh, kind of on the other end of the spectrum from hypertrophy. That's a fantastic question. I, I couldn't agree more with with your point. Our motto here is that muscle powers health and, you know, should be at the, the forefront of all of these discussions. Um, but to, to your question, so we, we, you know, look back to some of those preclinical studies in in the power of genetic research allows us to manipulate how certain cells function in different organisms. And in one of those particular studies, we're able to genetically delete satellite cells from the muscles of adult mice. When those animals are challenged with a direct muscle injury in the absence of satellite cells, the muscle does not, you know, regenerate or regrow at all and kind of you know, becomes a, a sort of fibrotic scar, if you will, uh, losing all functionality. In animals with a full complement of those stem cells, you're able to achieve meaningful regeneration. Again, speaking to the ability of the muscle, it can recover wholly de novo in three to four weeks in these animals. It truly, you know, a wild sight to see. But that is a very supra-physiologic injury model. You know, we're, we're not tasked with being bitten by snakes with venom across our limbs. You know, we're more challenged with tasks. I don't know. I live in Texas. <laughs> I hope that's not the case. Uh, uh, but, you know, we're, we're tasked with recovery after exercise, which still does induce, you know, a fair degree of micro damage to the muscle, necessitating the activity of satellite cells. You know, therein... As, as the fibers seek to respond to those individual bouts of exercise, your satellite cells activate. And so they receive signals from those damaged fibers that cause them to increase in number. They kind of exit that quiescent dormant phase and they dramatically expand in number. So they'll undergo a very clear proliferative phase whereby they increase several magnitudes of order. And then some of those cells further undergo a process termed differentiation, whereby they kind of commit to a muscle fiber lineage and they can either fuse with damaged fibers to sort of repair those micro tears, if you will, or if the damage is severe enough, 
individual satellite cells can link up, fuse together to form completely new or de novo muscle fibers if the damage is severe enough to warrant that sort of reparative process. That is so fascinating. When uh, you talk about uh, the differentiation of um, skeletal muscle fibers, once that satellite cell fuses, so if it's a type 1 or type 2 fiber and that fiber goes through a transition, uh, if, if in fact it does through aging, et cetera, or through change in, in training, does that affect the effectiveness of the stem cell? Does it have any um, implication on the, stem, the satellite cell? Uh, it's a fantastic question. You know, we're, we're very much just beginning to sort of parse out any fiber type specificity that may underlie satellite cell activity patterns. Again, you know, looking sort of in a very cross-sectional manner across participant biopsies, we see that there tend to be more satellite cells associated with your slower, more oxidative type 1 fibers than those sort of powerful, fast-twitch type 2 fibers. Does this inherently mean that type 1 fibers have a greater regenerative capacity? That's, you know, I think a question we have right now and trying to parse out experimentally how to test those paradigms is sort of where the research field is. You know, how can you more strategically target one fiber type or the other to test those theories? Um, and so at this point, I don't think we have sufficient evidence to say that there are very clear differences between fiber type, but that may be a very oversimplification just given the knowledge we have at this time. And it seems uh, somewhat counterintuitive. One would think that the um, type 2 fibers that are going undergoing power or hypertrophy would be um, shown to have or get, have more damage over time, right, from the goal of the training, that they would have more satellite cells. So it just makes me think, do they have other ways of regenerating? Um, which leads me to another question. Do we know what would potentially augment the effectiveness of a satellite cell post-training? For example, if an individual were to do some type of aerobic or endurance exercise, and we know that this has now stimulated these satellite cells, these satellite cells have fused, they've become very active, and they're doing what satellite cells do, would it be safe to say that a period of muscular rest would be important to amplify the effectiveness of the satellite cell, or is that totally in left field? No, these are exceptionally deep questions and, and things I think about on a daily basis. Um, so you're saying we could be friends? <laughs> I think so. I think so. <laughs> you know, it's one of these interesting concepts. I think for a younger adult, you know, it is very difficult to overtrain. You know, where we have a very robust system to accommodate the sort of demands exercise exerts on the body. As we age, you know, some of those processes may not be as robust as they were. And so there's been a few recent studies that has looked to kind of modify exercise programming in older adults. One group of adults might engage in a relatively high volume exercise training session. Their next bout might be relatively lower intensity and then they have another high intensity day. This would be compared to adults who had three high intensity days back to back to back. 
results of those types of studies where you're kind of modifying the intensity of your programming have shown that sort of a, a moderate approach, kind of a, a high, low, high day, you know, really sort of facilitated the recovery process in older adults. These were adults, I think, 65 and older in the, the study in particular, I, I'm thinking of. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, I think we need to do a good job of, of listening to our own bodies and, and, you know, trying to avoid a one side fits all, but definitely, you know, when undertaking a new exercise program, just being mindful of your body's cues and sort of responding in kind, but letting some of the literature and prior findings guide some of the decisions we may seek to make. And that, that makes perfect, just absolute perfect sense. And for the listener, muscle biopsies, uh, I'm sure I'm assuming you did the vastus lateralis, is a very uncomfortable experience. Uh, I would say both for the participant and the individual doing the biopsy. I have done many, uh, but it is only one small location. Uh, again, vastus lateralis. They, we have many other muscles that um, are not easy to test. It would be very painful and difficult to do a tricep. Uh, biopsy or a bicep biopsy, et cetera. This question might not have an answer, um, but I am extremely curious as if there is a unified response to training. So for example, um, if we were, obviously it depends on training status, but overall do individuals um, of similar cohort, cohorts respond the same? A fit 20-year-old may see, you know, a certain percentage of satellite cell activity versus a 50-year-old postmenopausal woman who is doing some type of endurance activity. We expect a satellite cell response to be as such. It's an excellent question. Um, I, I look forward to discussing. I will say, you know, I, I've had quite a few biopsies, both on the receiving end and, and collecting the <laughs> tissue myself. So you look like Swiss cheese. Yeah, no, no, you know, and it, it's it's not. You should be under relatively little, you know, sharp physical discomfort if, <laughs> if you know local anesthetic is applied nicely. Not just want to, you know, not dissuade any future research participants. Um, we are dependent on the tissue samples from our subjects. Um, but to your point, I, I think. That's, you know, a, a concept that has really come about, and I'd say the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, this appreciation on a very like basic molecular level, the heterogeneity, that, that sort of response variance we tend to see in exercise. And, you know, many studies or, or investigators have been able to kind of retrospectively look back, you know, in, in essence, everyone might respond to some degree to a new exercise program. Everybody gets a little bit stronger, accrues a little bit of muscle mass, but there is a lot of variance, you know, between participants in these studies. And so understanding the source of that, you know, heterogeneity or variance is an active area of research. If we can do a better job prescribing exercise selection to benefit individual people, you know, hopefully we could reduce some of that heterogeneity, but assuming a one size fits all training paradigm is, is often going to be wrought with, you know, a great spread in outcomes. People, some will adapt, you know, beautifully gain a lot of strength and muscle. Others might see very minimal, you know, adaptation and, and be frustrated and perhaps turned off by exercise. And you know, that's the exact wrong sort of 
take home message we want. And so what can we do as scientists to better understand that that source of variant so that we can better prescribe exercise programming so everyone hopefully can reap the benefit to a more similar degree. That heterogeneity of exercise and that exercise response is really of interest, especially in the medical community and this idea of a, quote, non-responder. And this is a a question I'm going to ask your opinion on. Do you believe that the non-responsiveness could be, or if if in such you do believe, that um, some people respond better and some people respond differently? Do you think that it has to do uh, with uh, potentially the influence of PAC-7 on gene transcription, that maybe that could be one area of focus? And if you just want to explain briefly uh, what that is and and that influence and that that target gene. Definitely. No, happy to discuss. Um, PAC-7 is, is what we would term a, a transcriptional factor. So it, in essence, turns on other genes, but for our purposes today, it serves as a fairly unique marker for satellite cells. It's often how we are able to identify them in patient biopsies or in more basic studies, manipulate the expression of genes within satellite cells. It has it confers a great deal of specificity to those muscle stem cells, to satellite cells. And there were a number of, of fantastic studies that looked at especially in you know, older adults, their ability to what we would term accrue myonuclei. So these are myonuclei derived from satellite cells. So older participants engaging in exercise, you know, continuing to increase the loads they're lifting, you're activating satellite cells. Some of those satellite cells fuse into muscle fibers. And when they do, they add nuclei to the existing fibers. And the results of some of that research suggested that the individuals who were able to more efficiently accrue myonuclei through satellite cell addition experienced the more robust adaptation to that exercise program, lending at least some evidence to this notion that, you know, your ability to activate and mobilize, if you will, your satellite cells could help dictate how robustly you're able to respond to a various exercise stimulus. And would you say that that's a more of a hypertrophy with the increase in, in myonuclei versus an, an endurance type activity? That's exactly. I agree completely with that. You know, at least in you know my realm, and I feel with most most others, when you're looking to engage in resistance training, you're hopefully seeking to build muscle or you know hypertrophy the the fibers you have, and so you know, that, that growth of fibers is often accompanied by the sequential addition of myonuclei. Muscle is a unique cell type. You can see in the images behind me, there are a number of nuclei along the length of an individual cell or fiber. And I often think of them as different, you know, governing ordinances along the length of the fiber. You drive so far in the state of Texas, you come to another city and then a city after that or a town after that. And as, as the fiber increases, if a state were to increase, you would increase the number of local governments to kind of oversee the running of that cell or that state. And so that's kind of the, the analogy here is that as our fibers grow, we're seeking to add nuclei via satellite cell fusion to kind of maintain the regulation of that muscle fiber, if you will. 
And so, you know, it's more so a goal of what we tend to see with resistance training or more hypertrophic stimuli versus endurance um, related activities. But there are a number of studies that have shown in sort of exercise naive participants upon beginning to engage in more aerobic training still do undergo some degree of satellite cell activation and fusion to kind of facilitate that early exercise adaptation, even when it's of a more aerobic type. Hmm. That's uh, really important to point out because, again, this is science being translated to action for the everyday is it safe to draw the conclusion that the more healthy satellite cells you have, the more capacity, of course, with the appropriate stimulus, the more hypertrophy one would be able to maintain? I, I do think there are a number of, of results from studies to kind of support that notion. Hmm. You know, I think, again, you know, the, the hope is to maintain as many healthy, if you will, satellite cells as you can, so that way your body is in the best possible position to respond to any sort of challenge or stimulus you throw at it, be it an unexpected injury or, or a more planned, you know, engaging in, in exercise or physical activity. So I think those are kind of critical, you know, adaptations we're seeking to enhance by maintaining a viable pool of satellite cells. And how would that relate to muscle memory? Ooh, muscle memory. It's, it's a good one. And so, you know, this, I, I think, it's a, it's been, you know, at, at the forefront of kind of exercise adaptation and, um, you know, understanding how muscle adapts for a while. And we're just now beginning to parse out our understanding of the basis of this muscle memory. So there are a number of, you know, uh, I'd, I'd say theories as to what serves as the basis of that. But there are researchers that have shown that one's ability to add nuclei through exercise training or other methods, and then engaging in a period of not exercise. So, you know, taking more of a couch potato uh, view on life and then sort of re-engaging with exercise, they were able to rebuild that muscle faster. And it was postulated that by adding those nuclei in a pre-existing exercise period, you were better able to harness muscle growth potential during that subsequent re-entry into exercise training. There are other groups too that feel there is an epigenetic memory, if you will, of exercise. And epigenetics without you know diving too much into it is how we're able to access various genes within our DNA, you know, how how accessible the expression of various genes can be and how exercise might permanently open up the expression of certain genes, and that becomes sort of a, a means by which to continue to support that muscle fiber, even when exercise stops and then is restarted. Hopefully then you're better able to increase back again the expression of those genes by having that sort of imprinting, if you will, within the DNA of our muscle fibers. I'd like to thank another one of the sponsors, and that is First Form. First Form makes incredible supplements. When we think about muscle health, hopefully you think about two things. You think about exercise, and that could be resistance training. It could be high-intensity interval training. And you think about dietary protein. And I'd love to highlight branch-chain amino acid powder. This is something that I don't often talk about because I think its use is very specific. 
if you are not meeting your protein needs per meal, so if you are having less than 30 grams of dietary protein at a meal because you just don't have a big appetite, this is a perfect place to utilize a scoop of branched-chain amino acids into a lower-protein meal, and this essentially brings up the quality of that meal to help support muscle health. First Form makes great branched-chain amino acids. I love the berry lemonade. You can mix it with water. You can have a small yogurt. You can have a scoop of branched-chain amino acids. Pick your flavor. Head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. That's firstform.com slash Dr. Lion, and you will get free USA shipping on your order of $75 or more. Thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of the show. Hey, the reality is we are all aging. It is a natural process. However, the speed and how we do it is largely up to us. And that's why it's very important to make sure that you keep tabs on your blood work. Things like ApoB for cardiovascular health, fasting insulin, fasting glucose, even just a regular old CBC and CMP. That's just a basic, complete blood count and a comprehensive metabolic panel. These things are really important. They are important to show you what you're doing right, what you're not doing right. Most importantly, where you can improve. My listeners get 20% off. Inside Tracker is a company I've been using for a very long time. They offer blood work direct to you. Go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. The pricing is incredibly reasonable, especially with this discount. You get to take control of your own health, which I love. Go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion for 20% off their entire store. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. The message to me would be start training younger and start training often. When an individual goes through this period of disuse, do the myonuclei stay? Do the satellite, the, obviously you said that the satellite cells become quinescent quinescent, which means essentially, in my understanding, sleeping, not doing much, waiting, hanging around, waiting, freeloading off your muscle. Um, what about the myonuclei? Do they stay? Do they uh, revert back to the original tissue? How does that, how does that work? Oh, hey, man, you, 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 uh, these are the most pointed questions I could have expected. I, I love the discussion. Um, I feel that's one of the biggest debates. And it was, I was part of a research, recent point counterpoint where we had two groups of scientists that were basically arguing either in favor of a loss of myonuclei, if you will, during a period of disuse versus those that argue the opposite, that there is a kind of maintenance of, of myonuclear abundance during periods of, of unloading or disuse. I wish we had a very definitive answer as to you know the true nature, but I do think that there is good evidence to show that in certain situations, you know, myonuclear number can become compromised. Um, and as such, perhaps, you know, what what the actual consequence of that is, does it lead the muscle to be more susceptible to, you know, an exacerbated 
atrophy response, or does it require then a greater stimulus to sort of recover? How does age per se affect these processes? You know, unfortunately, we have more questions than answer at this point, but I think there's evidence to show that this concept of the permanence, if you will, of a myonucleus during periods of disuse is an incredibly important, you know, a, a concept that we're all very actively trying to understand and define within the field. I know our lab has a great interest in it, and there are dozens, you know, pursuing similar lines of inquiry. So it's very exciting. It's very exciting to see what what is going to come from that. I'd love for you to mention some of the myocellular changes that are characteristic of aging, and we'll say aging because we don't have a a better term. I have three in mind. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'd be interested in your, your three. And so, yeah, you go first. I'll, okay, tell you I'll go you first. You know, uh, one of the, the bigger things that tends to jump out, you know, when we're looking both on a very specific biopsy basis or looking at more broad imaging of the musculature are deficits in, you know, what I term muscle quality. And this is, you know, perhaps an infiltration of fatty tissue in the muscle or, or fibrotic tissue. I I unfortunately go back to a lot of food analogies with students in the lab, but if I'm out shopping for steaks, I tend to favor a ribeye, something with a a fattier profile. It tastes better. It's a a richer cut of meat, but I argue for the opposite for how I want my own muscles to look as I get older. I'd much rather be sort of a leaner sirloin. And so, you know, again, uh, not being able to attribute it directly per se to aging, but this concept of how our muscles lose more of the muscleness, if you will, and perhaps have a little bit of replacement by fat or other tissues, they have less of an ability to produce force, you know, per unit muscle size at that point. Um, deficits in stem cells are another one. And I think we see two of the biggest ones are shifts in fiber type, as well as just age-related muscle atrophy. We can discuss any of those, but I'd love to hear your top three. So those were my top. Uh, I have one more that I'll throw in um, the loop here, and that is uh, potentially the decrease in capillary density and perfusion. Yes. We see all over um, just in general in aging and that uh, the potential distance between the satellite cells. Couldn't agree more. One one of the, you know, concepts near and dear to my heart. I wasn't sure if that was perhaps too into the weeds. And so I left it off my list. But (laughs) that was a a big research interest of ours is this concept that you speak to. You know, we deliver nutrients, oxygen and remove waste from our muscles via our capillary bed, that sort of terminal site whereby arteries and veins meet and the magic happens, if you will. And, you know, seeing less capillary density or a reduced perfusion ability of the muscle, that ability to deliver nutrients or oxygen to the muscle definitely can can compromise its, its adaptation. And so these were studies that we undertook when we looked in older adults and we kind of stratified them via a biopsy into how many capillaries, you know, they had in their muscle. All adults then underwent, you know, a progressive um, exercise training program and then follow-up measures were taken. And the individuals that had the most dense capillaries, the greatest number of those microvessels in their leg muscles underwent the most robust changes 
following exercise. They were better able to harness the ability of that exercise to build both muscle and strength. And we argued at least that it was the ability to kind of deliver muscle, remove or deliver nutrients, remove waste from that exercising muscle that kind of gave them a leg up, if you will. Whereas individuals with fewer capillaries were at a relative disadvantage. They had to kind of reestablish that functional capillary bed to then begin, you know, the, the more positive adaptation to exercise. So I definitely agree with you wholeheartedly that maintaining adequate, you know, perfusion of our muscle as we age is a critical factor that could determine how well we respond to exercise. And are there strategies to increase capillary density? Would that be something uh, equivalent to blood flow restriction or what are, what are strategies that potentially we could begin to think about incorporating? It's a fantastic question. I, I feel there are a number of approaches you could take. Uh, you know, it's something that I, I, you know, might lecture in class and, and trying to provide practical advice. But, you know, if I were a relatively sedentary adult looking to engage in, in some resistance training, I feel a period of sort of like an aerobic preconditioning, if you will. This may be walking outside, some stationary bike riding, kind of jump starting, hopefully that process to build back or restore some of that capillary density and then moving into sort of your, your progressive exercise resistance training, you may better than kind of reap the early benefit. Another way is exactly as you said, this concept of blood flow restricted training. So this is one of those um, you know, exercise paradigms that it kind of looks funny if you see people doing it, but they'll wear what amounts to a blood pressure cuff kind of very proximally or high up on a leg or an arm, the cuff is inflated to a degree whereby you are restricting arterial flow into the working muscles, but then completely obstructing venous return. This creates sort of a, a pooling effect in the muscle. You feel like your muscles are very full and you're, I don't want to say like, you know, causing a true ischemic event, but you're limiting local oxygen delivery for a couple of minutes. And this triggers the muscle to think that it needs more capillaries. So then it begins, you know, stimulating these processes to expand and grow the capillary bed because it senses there's less oxygen due to that cuff being inflated during these acute bouts of exercise. And so, you know, perhaps the you know, incorporation of a training program that included some blood flow restricted might be another way to help with that. You know, it's one of those um, um, exercise programs I think needs to be taken a little bit with caution, you know, if there oh, yeah. are any underlying vascular issues or, or anything like that, but it's definitely, you can consider it a tool, you know, in your toolbox that may be something to help jumpstart that exercise response. And that's really, really good advice. Uh, for the listener out there, uh, blood flow restriction is incredibly uncomfortable. Shouldn't go and get bands and do it by yourself. <laughs> it should be something that is done with a, a highly trained professional, um, certainly at least at first. And as Dr. Fry was mentioning, any kind of preconditions like uh, hypertension or um, other things within that category, uh, it should be used in caution. That being said, there is evidence to support it is very good for uh, exactly what Dr. Fry is discussing as well as injury. And it makes me think, well, maybe one of the benefits of blood flow restriction is in fact due to that 
increase in capillaries, what time frame would uh, we think um, in humans would we see an increase in capillary density? Is this a slow thing or is this something that would take six months to a year? Do we know? It's not as rapid as, you know, some of the more responsive processes to exercise. We, we think of, you know, completion of an acute bout, your muscle will start to build proteins within minutes after exercise cessation. You know, the ability to kind of expand that capillary bed, as you say, takes a little bit longer. You know, we're, we're limited again by the assessment of, of tissue samples from patients that are fairly invasive, but a number of studies have tried to add some clarity to that and have shown that at least in younger adults, your ability to kind of expand your capillary bed actually precedes or falls right in line with the ability of your muscle fibers to grow or hypertrophy. So we're talking, I'd say, you know, with, with a regimented exercise program, you can start to see changes maybe within a few weeks to definitely a month. And it's one of those things that, again, like many things muscle related, it is fairly plastic, which is good for us. Yeah, it is uh, interesting to think about how quickly skeletal muscle changes from an even uh, from a mass perspective uh, as a result of that incorporation of amino acids as opposed to for example thyroid tissue or cardiovascular tissue um, the turnover and the influence that we directly have is is quite unusual basically if uh, we could take it a step further um, to from a to a, a practical level which is exactly the road that we're going on it sounds as if you believe, and the literature would support somewhat of a preconditioning program, not just for uh, capillary density, but there's also potential for a preconditioning program prior to resistance training and increasing the outcome of that training uh, goal. And would could we agree that the goal of resistance training, would we say that it is strength or hypertrophy, we should probably define that. I don't know if it changes the preconditioning program. I or, think, yeah. no, fantastic. You know, I think whether, you know, you're chasing strength or hypertrophy, many of those changes should hopefully occur hand in hand. And, you know, I'm, what comes to mind is, is, is recent work out of McMaster University, whereby they you know, uh, kind of randomized adults to that exact program, or actually they randomized their respective limbs one limb underwent sort of a, I know it sounds, it sounds funny, a, a unilateral cycling program, you know, kind of this pre-exposure to aerobic exercise, and then both limbs engaged in the same progressive resistance exercise program. And the limb that had the early exposure to that unilateral cycling exhibited better adaptation. It accrued more muscle, had greater expansion in satellite cells, and I believe ended up producing, you know, greater strength improvements as well. These were younger adults, very healthy, not actively engaged in exercise. But I do feel there is mounting evidence to, to support that concept. I wonder what that would look like for a trained individual. Do you think, um, again, obviously training status matters, uh, age matters. Do you think that it could be a 10-minute warm-up at a comfortable pace, just a, a zone to chatting pace to really get the, the blood flow increasing? Do you, I definitely that? agree. I, I think something you know very accessible makes a lot of sense and would be much more easy to engage with. Yeah, it can be very daunting 
to begin exercising. And I think, you know, something of that nature is, is a nice introduction. You know, it's, it's fun. You could be, you know, still conversing with friends that you're engaging in this new exercise program with. So I think that's very applicable, but then would hopefully reap benefit too, as you move into more, you know, resistance type exercise modality. Um, you know, per your point as, as someone who's actively engaged in exercise, you know, I guess, you know, I'd want to consider what their goal is. You know, if they are actively exercising, I assume, you know, they, they have sport or performance related goals. Are they training for particular types of competitions? You know, maybe they're, you know, chasing a 5K PR or a marathon or, you know, engaged in the local CrossFit community. And so trying to understand, you know, what their current training programming looks like and how to help them better reach whatever performance goal they may have. And if it's, you know, more general health and wellness, there's obviously greater flexibility there to try and achieve those results versus chasing a, a specific goal or target. Yeah, that's a, a really good point. Do we have a time frame where there could potentially be diminishing returns? For example, if someone is doing 30 minutes of cardiovascular activity in this goal of preconditioning prior to a resistance training program, that may be a little bit too much versus stopping at a 15-minute mark. 50% of that would be ideal. Do we have any sense of timeframes? It's, it's, you know, I see the, 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 this concept of concurrent training, whereby you're seeking to harness both aerobic and resistance components to hopefully reap maximal benefit is, is obviously ideal. We all want to, you know, have the cardiovascular benefits of aerobic training, but hopefully build muscle and strength through resistive training as well. Um, oh, it, you know, it's difficult. I guess at the end of the day, we all have to choose a path. We're more, you know, focused on, on achieving benefit. And, you know, to me, at least, if I'm looking to maximize my ability to build muscle and strength, you know, I would be more concerned, you know, with, with a, a more, taxing aerobic bout of exercise preceding that resistance training as you move into that sort of you know 30 minute window i again speaking just anecdotally from myself i no longer have you know the requisite energy to lift as much weight as i feel i should to try and build strength and muscle and so you know personally speaking i may keep it at more of a 15 to 20 minute aerobic window at the beginning of a workout but again i think a lot of you know consideration to individual goals and then, you know, your own perceived enjoyment, if you favor one or the other should help. I mean, exercise should be fun at the end of the day. And, you know, wanting people to enjoy what they're doing is, is, you know, that's important. I would joke and say, if you guys are liking it, you're probably not working hard enough, but every morning I, I say to myself and my, my trainer, Carlos, this was the worst idea I've had all day. Um, now, you've done actually some very interesting research on specifically ACL injury and this something called a growth differentiation factor eight. Could you describe a little bit about what you were seeking to investigate and what your research showed? I'm happy to. You know, and so I, exercise has been an overarching passion of mine since as, as far as I can remember. And, you know, one of the concepts we explore in the lab is, is exercise can take many different shapes. And so we often seek to imply, you know, sort of exercise principles and the recovery from injury. Think of like 
rehabilitation is is exercise. You know, you're, you're, you're lifting weights, you're training, you're seeking to get back to where you were, but it's employing much of the same programming and concepts that exercise physiology leans on. And so much of our lab's, you know, research portfolio seeks to enhance recovery after a pretty common knee injury or an ACL tear, as you say, Dr. Lyon. And so it's, it's you know, uh, sustained at a relatively high rate in a lot of sports-specific activities, and the recovery process can be daunting. It's often a lot of younger athletes who really want to get back to their prior level of activity, re-engaging with the sport that they were participating in. And so our lab is very interested in identifying techniques and treatments to kind of facilitate that trajectory. Can we accelerate that recovery process? And so work that started in the lab a few years ago, we did some screening of patient samples and we observed that this growth differentiation factor eight, GDF8 or myostatin, was an early factor upregulated in the limb, in the muscle of the ACL afflicted knee, the knee that sustained the injury. And so further work from us, you know, continued to follow patients across time and show that those individuals that had the most robust elevation in that growth factor had, you know, relatively worse outcomes longer term. They showed greatest atrophy, the greatest weakness, and it extended beyond muscle. They had greater decrements in bone loss surrounding that injured knee. And so we thought that this may represent something modifiable, something we could target in an effort to enhance recovery. So that's where my lab kind of takes this concept, what we like to think of reverse translation. You know, we take observations gleaned from, from patients, from research participants, and then we seek to move back to the bench, if you will. We develop models where we can test out therapies in, in preclinical studies, try to find out what works in the hope to then translate back out to the bedside to enhance patients. And so we developed a, you know, a, a model of ACL injury in little furry subjects, and then we gave some of them different drugs, and some of those drugs were meant to completely inhibit that growth differentiation factor eight. And the animals lucky enough to be randomized to those drugs, they showed a much stronger recovery rate, almost complete restoration of muscle size and strength. But more importantly, looking at the overall concept of musculoskeletal health, they saw far greater preservation of the bone surrounding their knee and then better integrity of the cartilage in between, you know, the joint space there, that sort of soft tissue that helps bolster the impact of your limb when you run, when you participate in sports. And so looking ahead, it helped both accelerate recovery, but then hopefully also better protect the long-term health of that joint to enable activity, sport participation throughout the lifespan. That's so interesting. Why do you think that the body, you know, typically when the body has a response to an injury, it is trying to protect itself. Correct. It is trying to do something to facilitate regeneration. Why would the body release growth differentiation factor eight? Oh, and this is a, so this is a bit of, you know, my, my theories, my, my pet theories, but I like to think, and if I'm imagining, you know, a, a caveman running from a saber-toothed tiger, they sustain an ACL injury and they're managed to crawl off into a cave. You know, our body has a great healing ability. And if given enough time, you know, a partial ACL rupture will heal itself. But you need to 
protect that joint while it's healing. And so my thought is that the joint itself helps promote this GDF-8 release to weaken the surrounding muscle in an effort to not tax the joint while it seeks to build back that injured ligament. With the advent of modern reconstructive surgery, these sort of like evolutionary mechanisms no longer serve the purpose they once did and may, as you say, be more of a hindrance in the context of modern medicine. And so what once may have been a key for our body to kind of promote self-healing in today's, you know, attack mode response to recover, it may just kind of serve as a further barrier, you know, limiting that recovery, something that we may be able to knock down effectively to kind of restore and take advantage of, of you know, modern reconstructive techniques as we have them today. Is the growth factor released systemically? There, it's a systemic response versus a localized response. So I, I believe it is released more locally based from that injured limb, but we're able to detect upticks in levels found in, in you know, blood draws taken from the arm. So I think like you probably see a gradation whereby it's locally produced, but it ends up systemically within our bodies. And so it could serve perhaps as a biomarker of sorts to try and better deliver care in patients who might show an elevated response in that particular growth factor. And do we know that, <clears throat> excuse me, that injury is the only time that it's released? Are there other injury um, uh, tissues or other aspects of the human body in which it's released? Uh, you're, you're exactly right. You know, I think during periods of disuse, a number of studies have shown that GDF-8 is elevated. And so periods, whether by you're, you're in bed, if you're subjected to a cast after an injury, an acute fracture, I think a number of periods compromising normal health of the muscle, you know, will, will exacerbate the release and production of this growth factor. Do you think that there's any indication or any relevance clinically to routinely test this perhaps once a year for an individual? I, I know that you, I know that might be outside your comfort zone. I'm just asking for, for your opinion because it, it would make sense that if we were to really think about this concept of muscle-centric medicine, that we would begin to look at alternative lab values, other that we just begin to enhance and broaden our perspective. Um, I, I love that perspective. Um, I guess, you know, I would try and think of it two ways. If it were me who had sustained the injury, I would probably be testing my own values just because <laughs> I... I have a problem. Um, hey, everybody, where'd Chris go? Well, he's uh, in the lab, just taking his own blood. <laughs> you know, I, I think in terms of routine care, it may not be at that level yet. But, you know, I, I do hope that with, you know, current research findings, what they are, greater credibility is given to that concept. And, and you know, this sort of routine testing to you know, modify care or perhaps, you know, just, just try and have, uh, you know, a very musculoskeletal centric approach, especially with an injury like this, that compromises, you know, the musculoskeletal system, albeit very localized. But I, I do think that in certain instances, it could be useful. But I think, you know, with, within the confines of having sustained an acute injury or period of disuse, I'd be most interested in understanding that about myself in sort of the 
you know, day to day, I'm kind of just writing the status quo, it may not be as useful there. But any sort of acute, you know, perturbation, I would personally be interested in that information. And I know that the that these were done in, in mouse models. So the, the mouse model findings, you administered a GDF8 antibody, which is interesting, and that that really reduced atrophy and weakness and fibrosis, um, right. which again, <clears throat> excuse me, is something that we do see in an aging population, although uh, certainly takes time. Is there any uh, future use for, or do you know, of that GDF8 antibody use in humans. Uh, it seems like that would be um, really important. I agree. And I think there has been a lot of interest um, over the years in, in translating anti-GDF8 therapies. It is, I think of it like a huge molecular break for muscle growth. You know, it basically is able to shut down our ability to build muscle. You kind of remove your foot from that brake pedal you know, the muscle can, can grow far more easily in mice, whereby you delete this, you know, GDF-8, they look like superheroes. They're hypermuscular little critters that, you know, clearly show unchecked muscle growth. I think there's a number of challenges related to the translation of those therapies, especially within the context of aging. It, it's so difficult to understand, you know, when best the initiation of a therapy would, would need to occur, you know, at least within the context of our study, I have a precipitating event, you know, the injury was sustained and I have a clear point where I'm trying to enhance care thereafter. Looking across the lifespan, there are, you know, risks associated with any medication. At what point would it need to be, you know, more clinically viable to, to start moving into treatment to enhance muscle you know, there's a lot of reticency, I feel, just because any sort of off-target effect, if you're looking at a, a pharmacotherapy agent that you're giving, you know, perhaps across decades, you get into some murky water, so to speak. But, I, you know, I love this concept. and I do think there's much more consideration given these days, not just to promoting lifespan, but health span and what it takes to have functionality, you know, into our later years. And there are you know, you know, kind of high impact research groups looking at different, you know, cocktails that could enhance this concept of health span and what that would look like. But it's just one of the, you know, more difficult concepts I always try and wrap my head around is when would, you know, initiation need to begin, so to speak, with something as chronic as aging, as you so well put it. Yeah. Um, and I'm hoping we're going to get there. And for the, the listener or the viewer, the paper is GDF-8 inhibition enhances musculoskeletal recovery and mitigates post-traumatic osteoarthritis following joint injury. And this was in Science Advances. I will link it. It's a very interesting paper. Uh, you've published some papers that I think are just so well done. I would say one of my favorites uh, is the resistance exercise Training promotes fiber type specific myonuclear adaptations in older adults. I don't know if you uh, remember this I do. Uh, paper, but it was a, a 12 week program and they did full body resistance training. And uh, if you remember it, I'd love for you to just mention uh, a little bit about it because I want to point out for the listener that when a really respected 
and a real expert in the field, like Dr. Fry, not to make you blush or embarrass you, will tell you um, the limitations of the information, what his, uh, is, is his opinion versus what the data would support. And if you go back and you listen to this episode, you will see that he chose his words very carefully. Uh, not to embarrass you, but well done, sir. <laughs> I appreciate anyway, that. Anyway, on, on to the resistance exercise training. Now, that was a, a favorite study of mine. Um, it was back when I was faculty in Texas myself. Um, you know, it was it, we were looking to try and understand, I think, you know, the, the word you use previously, myocellular adaptations to exercise and what occurred kind of unique to different fiber types during um, resistance training in older adults. And so this, you know, it, it did require biopsies from participants who underwent then a 12 week progressive program. And we saw some unique differences as it relates to adaptation. You know, your, your more glycolytic or powerful fibers, you know, don't have a fair amount of fat within the fiber, but we saw that it was actually reduced with training. So perhaps seeking to improve, per se, the quality to a greater extent in those fibers. We also saw some unique findings as it relates to the capillary bed interacting with satellite cells to kind of promote further adaptation in those type two fibers. It's tough. One of the things I, I often try and think about is, you know, how more susceptible were those type two fibers to a new stimulus than the type one that may see greater just sort of basal activity and walking up and down stairs or to the end of the driveway that this exercise really represented a more dramatic stimulus to those type two fibers that may not have seen as much activation in the preceding years. But it definitely showed that those type two fibers, both work from our lab and others have shown that, you know, it's not all doom and gloom that you maintain a lot of that adaptability as you age. And so just by beginning to, you know, engage in exercise, you're able to sort of rejuvenate some of these pathways and restore a great deal of adaptation and functionality to your muscle. You know, I feel like uh, there's a lot of negativity painted in the adaptation to exercise as we age, but, you know, time and time again, there are a number of studies that show lifelong exercisers show just, you know, fantastic looking muscle that's more akin to a person in their 30s when they're in their 70s. And just our own work has shown that, you know, you definitely have the ability to reap benefit if you go out there and, and, and participate. I think that that's, I guess, the take home I always seek to do is, is anything is better than nothing. And just getting out and being active is the best advice to give. I think that it does highlight that, that it is truly never too late. So the average age of the participant was 71. And, you know, we hear a lot of individuals, a lot of women and men in their 40s and 50s saying, well, you know, is it is it too late for me? Do I have to do hormone replacement? Do I have to do X, Y, and Z? Is this where I'm stuck? And the literature would say that that is uh, quite frankly not true. I do have a question regarding that infiltration of fat. So there is the athlete's paradox whereby we see endurance athletes see an increase in triglycerides within skeletal muscle. The flux is quite frequent, so we don't see some of the more negative byproducts build up. Um, but for a more sedentary individual, when we see the increase in intramuscular um, or intramyocellular fat or lipid droplets, how fast do you think it takes to see turnover or remove them? 
It's a, it's a great question. I think, you know, with, with regard to the athlete paradox, you know, they're, they're able to mobilize and utilize those droplets as sources of energy because they're chock full of little powerhouses within their muscle fibers, the mitochondria. You know, in, in the context of a more sedentary adult, mitochondrial density tends to be lower, and so they're less able to utilize those fatty acid stores within the fibers. And so one of the earlier adaptations to exercise that occurs is this mitochondrial biogenesis. And so hopefully you do begin to kind of increase the abundance and, and functioning of those mitochondria to sort of, you know, put those fatty acid stores to use. I'd like to think that's what we saw in the participants in our research study. And I do think that is one of the more early, you know, forms of adaptation to exercise that occurs. But, you know, it definitely, uh, in terms of the fat you see in, in the muscle of a, a, a sedentary person, it's, you know, it's, it's easy to maybe conflate with that of a, an elite marathon runner. But there are definitely, you know, two different species in terms of their ability to use that fat. Like you say, that flux is very quick in those elite trained athletes, they've trained their bodies to rely on those sources because they provide such prolonged energy during, you know, long runs or, or, or you know, lengthy cycling bouts. And so it's just for sure a byproduct of the, the years they put into their respective sport training. Yeah. And I, and I often get that question how, you know, when I, when I was doing my uh, geriatric fellowship, um, we would look at sarcopenic patients and um, the thought was that yes, they can always get stronger and yes, there was always improvement, but once the tissue becomes somewhat infiltrated with fat and uh, fibrose, that there was no going back. And I would say it's probably on a continuum, just like the liver and other tissues, that as long as you're not too far gone in one direction, that you probably can begin to deplete some of those intramyocellular uh, fat stores and and have a, a positive usage. The length of time, I have no idea. Is it one bout of exercise? Is it uh, two weeks? Uh, certainly, we see an influence in insulin sensitivity and glucose utilization quite quickly, but the actual tissue change in, in utilization, I don't know. I, I don't know if you have an answer. For that. It is, it's, a, it's a fantastic point to make that point taken, though, that, yeah, you'll see improvements in, in glucose disposal, insulin, you know, utilization with a single bout of exercise. And, you know, it may not be we may not have the sensitive tools enough to where we can speak to those changes on an acute bout basis. But I do think within just a few short weeks, you would be able to observe those changes. Um, and they're definitely, I think, visible from you know, more, more, um, metabolic type parameters, like you speak to looking at that glucose disposal, the muscle will, you know, really start serving as a store for that glucose to be uptaken after acute bouts of exercise very quickly, you know, upon initiation of, of training. And I do think too, that, you know, I, man, I'd, I'd be hard pressed. I've seen a lot of human biopsies thus far in my career. And I don't think I've seen one where I'd say, that person's too far gone, you know, they're not going to reap any benefit. I think as, as, you know, different all shapes and sizes that our muscles may come and how they're affected, you know, by our, our life paths, I, I think every one of them could, you know, definitely experience a significant, you know, degree of improvement with, with exercise. I definitely would caution against anyone thinking that they're, you know, past the point of no return. 
I second that. I think that that is so important for the listener to take away. You know, so far we have covered what you do, your current research. We've also talked about this concept of muscle plasticity, which is so important in the adaptation of recovery, uh, muscle wasting injury, as well as hypertrophy, the critical nature of a satellite cell, which again, I find incredibly fascinating, especially considering it is so important and yet it makes up only two to 4% of the cells, which is wild. What else that we spoke about that I absolutely love is this idea of preconditioning uh, for the goal of increasing capillary density and just overall performance and uh, adaptation to exercise. I would love to talk about this, but we're not going to because I'm going to let you get out of here on time. Um, eventually, one of the I'll have you back for a round two, um, most certainly. And the point of conversation for that would be really the difference between humans and rodent models, because I, I think that it's important to highlight, especially, and maybe if, even if you have a, a few minutes, especially when it comes to muscle physiology, muscle health, it is different. Um, Agreed. I, I can take just a short little, you know. Wonderful. Um, I, I'm just trying to honor your time. I know how busy no, you are changing no. the world. Um, and it, it's tough. I, you know, I feel we occupy a unique niche. You know, we perform clinical research and we perform preclinical research. And there tend to be more scientists on either side that then don't see the respective contributions of their colleagues. If you're you know, very, very mechanistically oriented, human research might not seem interesting enough for you. And those that are more clinically oriented think, you know, maybe preclinical models have zero translation. I think, you know, we, we use animal models to, to, you know, support our clinical work. They're, they're serving a purpose to try and understand better what does go on in a person when we don't have the ability to sample every tissue, you know, under the sun or any time point we want, we have to be, you know, <laughs> a considerate of participant burden and getting poked and prodded with needles. But, um, you know, mice and, and rats are, are incredible critters. If I put a wheel in a mouse's cage, it'll run 10 to 12 kilometers a night just by choice. I, I don't know many humans that <laughs> would do that. So, you know, their intrinsic drive to just get out and run vastly, you know, supersedes most, most people and they are very active creatures by nature. And so something like that is, you know, I always task our lab with thinking that, you know, we put an animal in a small box, you know, we're likely forcing it to be more inactive than it would by nature. And so how does that, you know, change or not your interpretation? But, you know, I do feel that, you know, adaptation to exercise, there are a number of conserved pathways that span, you know, mouse to human. And so we can understand a fair deal about how we do, you know, recover from exercise from using rodent models. Our lab, you know, employs that to a great degree. And there's just, you know, frankly, a lot of information that can be gained through, you know, the power of genetic studies to, to, to understand what then specific genes or gene programs might do to govern that exercise response. Having an appreciation for species differences is key, but then understanding the power that the data could provide to help 
better prescribe exercise or understanding how to improve muscle health across the lifespan, I think there's lots to be learned, you know, from employing preclinical models. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Do you think that we are going to get to the point where we'll be able to very specifically based potentially on someone's genes, be able or various other factors that we determine that we will be able to say for your muscle health longevity, here are the things that you should be doing. You should be doing a variable high intensity interval training because your satellite cells are um, really robust in their recovery and their spacing and their density versus potentially another individual may be more uh, geared towards some type of endurance. I'm just curious if we're ever going to get to the point where we can really understand a dose response based on various factors, just as we are able to say, you have a blood pressure of 140 over 90, we're going to trial you on hydrochlorothiazide or Based on your genetic profile, we've done uh, DNA uh, genetic SNPs. We know that this medication for depression is going to work best for you. Do you think we're going to ever get there? I definitely do. And I think you can see the signs right now. I mean, many people have a 23andMe report that speaks to their athlete subtype based on, you know, alpha actinin 3 uh, snips and uh, you know how predictive that is for performance. We're still you know at the at the cusp, so to speak. But you know between a genetic screening and understanding certain other biomarkers, I do think I'd like to think within you know our respective lifespans, we'd be at that point where you could harness you know the the multitude of knowledge about one's own body to then better try and think how to approach sport, exercise, what have you to to reap maximal gains or just you know maybe avoid injury. You know you could in avoid perhaps falling into overtraining pitfalls or, or just being more, you know, uh, purposeful in, in thinking about how we go about physical activity. I'm, I'm very hopeful that I, you know, I'll have that information at my disposal as, as I continue to get older. <laughs> well, I'm calling you for that. Um, I'm definitely calling you for that. Where is, as we wrap up this interview, first of all, it's such an honor to have you on. I'm a huge fan of your work. I think that you are really making inroads and doing such important information. It's just such important work and providing clinicians as well as researchers with just valuable information. What is on the horizon for you that you're excited and can share? Thank you first for the opportunity. Um, I've been a big fan of the show for a long time. Like I said, it's a, a daunting list of speakers you've had in prior sessions. So I was Uh, gulping pretty hard, looking forward to today um, among their ranks. But this has been a fantastic opportunity to chat with you. You know, what what we're doing to look forward, um, you know, I'd say aging and exercise have been passions of mine since since my career began. And we have some exciting data I hope will be in a, a publishable format soon, looking to really kind of enhance that growth response and studying a couple of key factors that we stumbled across with some screening and we're doing a few studies to really try and target them to see how much we can restore that growth response with age to that of you know, a younger animal in this case. But um, it's some of the work I am very excited about. And then two, just you know, in line with our, 
our, our recovery after ACL injury. We've got a number of ongoing clinical trials all the way down to preclinical research, always looking to devise new therapies to, to get athletes back to what they were doing, you know, before, before injury. Well, that's all very exciting. When those papers come out and you are ready to share, I will bring you back on the show to talk about it. And uh, if you want to tell people where to find you. Please, no, uh, at, we're on Twitter as a lab, um, at Chris Fry PhD. It's, I think, where we're most active uh, to kind of share and disseminate our work to the public. Um, and then happy to take emails, too, uh, if anyone has specific questions. Christopher.Fry at UKY.edu. That is very generous of you. Dr. Fry, thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to our part two. Thank you so much. Have a great day. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.